despite the plain language of the 14th Amendment, I don't think we should assume that courts will rule that Mr. Trump is acting beyond his powers. Jared and Ivanka, you are complicit in the murder of your own people. You stand idly by when your father spouts hate against immigrants, women, people of color, refugees, and anyone not like him. We cannot combat anti-Semitism without also combating anti-black racism and xenophobia and homophobia and transphobia and Islamophobia. So we are here today to tell you that we are committed to you. That we are here to do whatever, it, whatever we need to do to protect our communities and to send a message to our young people that we will stand together in the face of hate, that we will be in solidarity, and that we will never succumb to the hatred that we see in our country right now. And that we are the majority. We are the majority. We are the majority. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. On today's show, American Jews and allies in the Muslim, Latino, and Sikh communities rally outside the White House, telling Donald Trump that the blood of 11 slain inside a Pittsburgh synagogue is on his hands. Gerald Horn talks about the last two weeks of violence and controversial proclamations from the White House. And we bring you voices from outside what was the home of the Palestinian Liberation Organization before it was forced by the Trump administration to close on October 10th. All that is coming up, but first our headlines. A Sunday rally in front of the White House was one of several actions held in D.C. this week to mourn the 11 worshipers killed by a white supremacist at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Stash Kotler director of the Jewish organization Ben the Ark, was one of several speakers who drew connections between the massacre and Trump's embrace of white nationalism. In 2015, Ben the Ark led a national campaign targeting then-candidate-to-be, or candidate Trump, and the campaign was called, We've Seen This Before. As Jews, we heard the echoes of fascism in Trump's demonization of immigrants, scapegoating of religious minorities, undermining the free press, and his incitement to mob and state violence. We have seen all of this before. Now, this week alone, after two years of continuous and vile hatred pouring from the mouths of Trump and his enablers, we witness the racist murder of two black people in Kentucky, the attempted erasure of trans people, the criminalization of a caravan of refugees desperately seeking safety with some, quote, questionable Middle Easterners. A coordinated attack of bomb threats against opponents of this administration and yesterday the slaughter of 11 Jews in a synagogue during a prayer service as a baby was being named. With clear eyes, we see this as political violence as violence and terror fueled by white nationalism and white nationalists aimed at all of our communities, at all of our communities. In addition to highlighting the rift between American Jews and the Trump administration, the massacre has also highlighted the rift between American Jews and Israel 
as Israel's ambassador used the tragedy to smear Palestinian solidarity activists and supporters of the boycott divestment sanctions movement. Rabbi Alyssa Wise of Jewish Voice for Peace said, quote, For an Israeli diplomat to compare college students defending Palestinian human rights to a mass murderer is reprehensible, insulting, and frankly dangerous. Criticizing Israeli policy or defending Palestinian human rights is not in any way anti-Semitic, she said. However, employing white supremacists as Trump and other politicians have done is indeed anti-Semitic. Moreover, making false claims of anti-Semitism is dangerous, as the events of this week have shown, because these false claims distract from the dangers of real anti-Semitism, the rabbi said. The issue of D.C. public safety, public health focus, violence, prevention, and alternatives to policing was the subject of the Transforming Safety Forum held this week in Northwest D.C. Chantel James attended and has more. This Monday, Ward 1 Councilmember Brianne Nadeau hosted a forum at the Reeves Center on 14th and U Street. Transforming safety was a frank discussion on the policing of D.C. communities. In groups, participants voiced their concerns with police activity and discussed alternatives to calling the police in various crisis scenarios. Police accountability organizer Natasha Knapper spoke about why there is such a need for alternatives to over-policing in the district. First of all, in terms of calling the police, what I always kind of think of when people kind of go to that as an automatic solution to resolve an issue of um, violence or, uh, or for, not even violence, really anything in their community that's making them feel unsafe, one thing I like to think about is, in D.C., it is the most heavily policed city in America. There are more than 30 policing bodies that exist in this city, including things like library police, the Howard police. I mean, I, mean, I could get the park police. I mean, it can just go on and on and on. And if policing were the solution to make this the safest city, the safest community possible, then this would be the safest city in America. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I don't feel that. The council member also brought safety issues such as street harassment into this conversation on public safety. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. Now, elected officials in Maryland also showed up this week, but for a different cause, to support Democratic progressive candidate Ben Jealous in his uphill bid for governor of the state of Maryland. P. Tucker attended a raucous get-out-the-vote event in Father's Report. Before a standing-room-only crowd Tuesday night, Bernie Sanders rallied with Ben Jealous, the Democratic nominee for Maryland governor. The rally, held at Bethesda Blues and Jazz, took place as Marylanders continued heading to the polls in record numbers. To date, early voting is up over 100 percent from 2014, the last gubernatorial election. This increased voter turnout has been strongest among Democrats and threatens to upend pollsters' predictions. Calling this, quote, the most important midterm election in the history of the United States, Bernie Sanders made the case that Ben Jealous will be a great Maryland governor. No candidate for governor who has the guts to stand up and fight for ordinary people in this state. Nobody I know. 
to Bernie Sanders, other speakers at the rally included former Governor Martin O'Malley, Congressman Jamie Raskin, Attorney General Brian Frosch, and Jealous's running mate, Susie Turnbull. Jealous has also received the endorsement of former President Barack Obama, who cited Jealous's, quote, exemplary work as national president of the NAACP. Following Senator Sanders' introduction, Jealous uses remarks to highlight some of the differences between himself and his Republican opponent, Governor Larry Hogan. Somebody said to me, what's the difference between you and Larry Hogan? I said, it's real simple. He's taking a check from the NRA, and I've gotten an F from the NRA. He said, what's the difference between you and Larry Hogan? I said, well, I'm endorsed by the teachers. He cut $68 million from our public schools and then proposed $30 million for a new youth prison. I said, well, what's the difference between you and Larry Hogan? I said, well, he takes a lot of money from the pharmaceutical companies and I'm building a movement to take on the pharmaceutical companies. That was Ben Jealous for On the Ground. I'm Pete Tucker. Thank you, Pete. In climate news, new research published in the journal Nature on Wednesday said that humanity may have even less time to drastically cut carbon emissions than the United Nations suggested in its recent report on the climate crisis. The report said that Earth's oceans have retained 60% more heat each year over the past 25 years than scientists previously believed. The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change argued in its report released last month that humanity must cut carbon emissions in half by 2030 in order to avert climate catastrophe by 2040. But that time frame was based on previous and possibly conservative estimates of global warming. In climate activism news, the Oakland Climate Action Coalition claimed victory Tuesday night after that, California City passed a resolution declaring a climate emergency and committing it to urgent action to tackle the crisis. And in London, a new group calling itself Extinction Rebellion rallied over 1,000 people to block Parliament Square on Wednesday, marking the launch of a mass civil disobedience campaign, with the group issuing a, quote, declaration of rebellion, end quote, against the government because the activists say, they, quote, refuse to bequeath a dying planet to future generations by failing to act now, end quote. Gail Bradbrook read the group's declaration to the crowd. The governments of the world are unwilling to tell the truth about the climate chaos we are entering, about the ecological crisis we are already in. We are in a mass species extinction event. 
People across the world are already dying because of this crisis. We send our love and our solidarity to all those suffering because of this crisis. We send our love and solidarity to everyone who is on a front line trying to protect the land and the water. Our love to all protectors. Our love to all who are also fighting for social justice. The ecological crisis is coming home to the UK. The UN and scientists have issued dire warnings. We face possible collapse in our food supplies in the UK in coming years. I refuse to stand by and risk my children starving. I refuse to do nothing and leave them a legacy of an uninhabitable planet. Human extinction in my children's lifetime is a possibility. The science is clear. We demand that the government tells the UK citizens the truth about this crisis and that they work with communities to build resilience. We demand that the government enact legally binding measures to reduce carbon emissions to net zero by 2025 and to reduce consumption that is destroying the habitats of the earth globally. Yes. Police arrested 15 people taking part in the action, but organizers say the wrong people were taken into custody. Quote, if we lived in a democracy, Extinction Rebellion declared in a tweet, quote, the police would be here to arrest the criminal politicians who are wrecking the planet, end quote. And finally, in culture and media, through November 4th, the 45th annual D.C. History Conference is happening at the University of the District of Columbia, 4200 Connecticut Avenue in Northwest D.C. Also, Saturday, November 3rd and Sunday the 4th, the Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace and Reparations is calling for black people to descend on Washington, D.C. for a two-day mobilization demanding an end to U.S. military and economic aggression in Africa and African communities. For more information, visit blackisbackcoalition.org or call 786-505-9859. And on Sunday, November 4th, 6 p.m. at the Emergence Community Arts Collective, 733 Euclid Street in Northwest D.C., there will be a screening of the movie short Trouble Conspiracy to Riot and a panel discussion on J-20 protests and trials of activists arrested during the inauguration of Donald Trump. Here's a trailer from Trouble Conspiracy to Riot. No one wanted to just show up and just show out. Like there was a definite message about disrupting the inauguration. We 
certainly attended with an obvious attempt to disrupt the inauguration, specifically because of the rising fascism of Trump. That day cemented what solidarity looks like. We were eventually kettled on a corner of 12th and L Street in downtown D.C. And then we were just arrested one by one. You're going to be in jail. Like, that's another world you have to process and readjust yourself to. And we were not about to go there. Trouble Conspiracy to Ride is produced by the organization Submedia. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn on why we all need to care about Trump's threats to the 14th Amendment and more. Stay with us. I met my brother the other day. I gave him my right hand. And just as soon as ever my back was turned, he scandalized my name. On the ground, on the groundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, over the past two weeks, white supremacists have attacked or murdered more than a dozen people on U.S. soil. President Trump has ratcheted up heated rhetoric against immigrants. And to top it off this week, Trump even claims that he has executive right to end birthright citizenship guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Here to help us unpack this new phase of right wing violence and rhetoric in the U.S. is on the grounds, geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn. In his more than three dozen books, Gerald Horn has uncovered the real roots of the United States, capitalism, and its tentacles of slavery, colonialism, and imperialism. His most recent book is The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. And I want to first ask you to give me your biggest takeaway from what feels like an almost coordinated right-wing attack on African-Americans, immigrants, from South America and Jews just weeks before the midterm elections? Well, I'm afraid to say that any who are surprised by this turn of events have not been paying attention. 
That is to say that ever since November 2016, when Donald J. Trump was elected with the support of 63 million people after running a racist campaign that began with his attacking people of Mexican origin, why should anybody be shocked that now words turn into action? Not only that, but we have to look at the recent decades of history in the United States with the attack on the left, the attack on the black liberation movement, and like a seesaw, when these progressive movements went down, the ultra-right white nationalist movements went up. I'm afraid to say that this is also not a domestic trend. We know that in Brazil, you have a similar phenomenon. So that's my takeaway from this unfortunate turn of events. So... You and I recently discussed the strategic importance of the 14th Amendment and how it could very well be one of the main targets during this right-wing offensive in the U.S. So many pundits are calling this a pre-election stunt to rile up Trump's base when he talks about being able to do away with the 14th Amendment with an executive order. But I'm wondering if you think this statement from him could be more and part of a longer game. And if so, you know, what could be the impact and and how do we fight back legally? Well, first of all, the plain language of the 14th Amendment suggests that those who are born in the United States or citizens of the United States, that has been the way the 14th Amendment has been interpreted for over 150 years. However, there's an underlying tension in this country that I'm afraid oftentimes goes unrecognized. That is, that for decades preceding the U.S. Civil War, there was a real conflict and contest as to whether or not the United States was going to be a so-called white man's country. Uh, That led to these various plans to expel the Negroes, to exterminate the Native Americans, And this also helps to explain the imposition of Jim Crow when slavery was abolished. It was a kind of internal exile for the black population in particular. Despite the plain language of the 14th Amendment, I don't think we should assume that courts will rule that Mr. Trump is acting beyond his powers. His former lawyer, and the well-known and fortunately deceased anti-communist fixer, Roy Cohn, before he charged into court as a lawyer, he would oftentimes say, I don't want to know what the law is, I just want to know who the judge is. And since we know that the Republicans have been packing the courts, particularly the federal courts that will be ruling on Mr. Trump's measures, we should not naively assume that they will follow the law and the plain meaning of the 14th Amendment. I think that those in the first place who should be concerned are those of Latin American descent and Asian descent, but ultimately I think the black population should be concerned as well because the 14th Amendment was designed to reverse the infamous Dred Scott decision of 1857, which fundamentally said black people could not be citizens in the United States of America. If the 14th Amendment is vitiated through reinterpretation, does that bring back Dred Scott? I think these are very weighty and profound issues that we should not be naive about. So it seems as if we'd be kind of taking the game out of our hands if we just say, okay, it's up to the courts now. 
Well, clearly, that would be the case. But as you know, that has been the thrust of the civil rights community for decades now, putting their faith in the courts, putting their faith in the wizardry of lawyers. Obviously, we need to talk about demonstrating. We need to talk about massive civil disobedience. We need to talk about protests. We need to talk about mobilizing the international community. But realistically speaking, that's a muscle that has not been used by our movement for some time now, particularly the civil rights community. So next, I want to talk about this level of violence. I'm sure for especially a lot of younger people, they will feel like they are living in somewhat unprecedented times. Uh, when, when they look at the high school killings, the you know, random acts of violence, you know, mass shootings. And we've often discussed that this country was born in extreme violence, but that fact does not make the mail bombs or the racist murders in Kentucky or in Pittsburgh feel normal. So is there anything unprecedented about the moment or timing of this violence? I can't say that it's unprecedented because, as your comment suggested, the country was born in violence after slavery was abolished and slavery was implanted and imposed through violence. You had the rise of the Ku Klux Klan post-1865, which was no more than the armed wing of the Democratic Party. We recall that during the struggle against Jim Crow in the 1960s, there were frequent bombings. Recall the bombing of a Birmingham church in 1963, one of many. So I'm not sure what I can say to suggest that this is that unusual. I suppose in terms of the proximity to an election. If you recall that when the Ku Klux Klan arose, it basically was involved in trying to assassinate the black political candidates, trying to terrorize black voters in particular. And you have a similar attempt to eliminate black voters uh, by more genteel measures in the state of Georgia, for example, just by Xing their name from the voting rolls. So even with regard to violence and proximity to an election, I, I can't say it's, not, it's that abnormal. Now, I also want to ask about the idea or the promise that Trump will send, I think the last figure I heard was 15,000 soldiers to the Mexico border. And this is in advance of the caravan of refugees traveling north from Honduras. At this point, they're more than a thousand miles away traveling on foot, you know, maybe upwards of a month away. But Trump is continuing to talk about this caravan as a way of ratcheting up his base before the midterm elections. So would the deployment of troops to the border violate the Posse Comitatus Act, which prohibits soldiers to act on U.S. soil? Well, I have to respond the way I responded to the birthright citizenship question. That is to say that Mr. Trump and the Republicans have packed the federal courts. Supposedly, you're not supposed to deploy U.S. troops on U.S. soil, but with the magic of the law, and the twisting of loopholes, it's possible that a compliant federal court would think otherwise. Another way to look at this gambit by Mr. Trump as a maneuver to try to 
manipulate the vote along the border. For example, in Texas, there are a number of candidates who are in jeopardy who are Republicans. I'm thinking of Will Hurd, who happens to be a black American, by the way, but is a Republican. He's also a former CIA analyst. He represents one of the biggest congressional districts in the House of Representatives, and yet he's in a very tight and close race, not least because of the opposition to what Mr. Trump is trying to do alongst the border. Not only that, but even though senatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke is behind the polls in his challenge to Senator Ted Cruz, he has raised a ton of money. He is flooding the airwaves with advertisements. There's talk in Texas of a Beto bump that might help those who are running against the Republican Party uh, down ballot including those who are challenging Will Hurd for his congressional seat. So that may help to shed light on why Mr. Trump all of a sudden has been talking about deploying federal troops on U.S. soil. Well, I think you mentioned Brazil earlier, but I want to return to that subject. You know, since we talked last, there's been the election of this extreme right-wing candidate, Bolsonaro. And despite his rhetoric, despite his past statements, uh, past actions, uh, his allegiance to like the military dictatorship of Brazil in the 1960s, he was elected. So I want you to talk a little bit more about his win, especially in the context of what it could mean for other people of color in Brazil and in South America. I understand there have already been threats made against Venezuela and, and also how it could impact the BRICS combination of countries that we've discussed in the past, which include Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, in terms of their attempt to build an alternative economic model for themselves and system for themselves in the world. Well, I agree with you that Venezuela in particular should be on guard, particularly in light of the fact that National Security Advisor John Bolton has just made a speech where he's introduced the phrase, the troika of tyranny which supposedly includes not only Venezuela, but Cuba and Nicaragua. And like its predecessor, the so-called axis of evil, uh, you can expect that the White House and Mr. Trump will place Venezuela in the crosshairs, and Cuba too, and Nicaragua too. Uh, This is a very dangerous turn of events because one would think that Washington has not learned a lesson from his previous confrontations with Cuba in particular. But with regard to Mr. Bolsonaro, who will probably be a partner in crime if and when Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua are targeted, the fact is that despite polls showing that he would win by 20%, he won by 10%. The opposition to him got 45%, which is a good basis for a resistance movement to neo-fascism in Brazil. There are also contradictions in his elite coalition. That is to say, he's talked about privatizing state-owned companies. There are those in the military who are envisioning an Egyptian model whereby the military basically profits from state-owned corporations, whereas there are entrepreneurs in Brazil who would like to control these state-owned enterprises themselves when and if they're privatized. 
But in any case, as your comment suggests, this neo-fascism in Brazil is a direct challenge to BRICS. I mean, how can Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, the BRICS, how can they be a credible alternative, as some have thought, to the hegemony of U.S. imperialism of the North Atlantic nations when you have a leading member of BRICS speaking of Brazil basically in the pocket of Uncle Sam? The election in Brazil handicaps BRICS tremendously. And since we're talking about elections and leaders, I don't want to end this week's talk without mentioning the statement by Angela Merkel in Germany that she would not seek another term. And she has been considered kind of like the bedrock or kind of a stationary force kind of holding together some sense of European unity. So what are your thoughts about what she had to say? Well, If you look at these recent elections in Germany that have led to Chancellor Merkel's decision to step down from party leadership, somehow she thinks she can stay as chancellor until 2021, although I doubt if that'll take place. When she relinquishes party leadership, I think it's inevitable she'll have to relinquish electoral office. And even though much of the press is focused, perhaps understandably, upon the Alternative for Germany party, which is a neo-fascist, neo-Nazi organization, part of the good news coming out of Germany, it's always appropriate to have a ray of sunshine in our conversations, is that the Greens have been soaring electorally. In some ways, they're becoming the number two party uh, displacing the Social Democrats. And given their environmental consciousness in particular, uh, this is good news for planet Earth, not least. Well, we'll end it there for today. Uh, When I talk to you next time, I want to go other places in Europe and switch our focus to the continued U.S. support of violent neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine. It's an area we really haven't talked about a lot, but since we're talking about the rise of the right here and in Brazil and in you know, parts of Europe. I don't want us to forget how the United States government is often being the midwife to many of these movements. Clearly. Right. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. On Wednesday, October 10th, a rally was held at what was the Office of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in the Georgetown section of D.C. Here are some of the voices outside the PLO mission. Thank you, Hannah, and thank all of you for being here. Um, my name is Jim Zogby. I'm from the Arab American Institute. Today brings me back 40 years when I first came to Washington and the PLO was illegal and had no voice in Washington. Um, after Oslo, we thought that would change. The first indication we had that the U.S. could not deal fairly was when instead of removing the legislation that made the PLO illegal to operate in the U.S., APEC put conditions on it and created a waiver so that every six months the president would have to issue a waiver allowing the office to stay open. They never really were treated fairly in Oslo or after Oslo. And what we're seeing play out today is the impact of that. One party to Oslo has violated every single condition of that peace accord and has never been sanctioned, and not only that, but has received increasingly more aid and more acceptance of all of their illegal policies. The other party, the weakest party, which was always expected to do the heaviest lifting, has been repeatedly sanctioned, and today their office is being closed. Not only that, the voice is silenced here, but in addition to that, the Trump administration has taken Jerusalem off the table, has taken, as they say, refugees off the table, and now they're trying to take Palestinians as a people off the table, thinking that by pummeling them into submission, there'll be peace. What we're here to say, quite simply, is you can close the office and you can silence the voice, but the Palestinian people will not go away. They remain. They remain on their land. They remain in their camps waiting to return. And we, here as a community, remain as their voice the voice of the Palestinian people, which I refer to as the wound in the heart of the Arab world that never healed. You can rub salt in that wound, but ultimately, that people will come back. That people will gain their legitimate rights. They have not given up before, and they will not give up now. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Wael Zayat. I'm CEO of a national Muslim uh, political organization uh, focused on turning out the Muslim vote and supporting the right candidates for public office. Um, I'm a former U.S. diplomat of 10 years. I served at the State Department on many assignments focused on uh, the region of the Levant. Um, and, and it's really a disgrace what this administration is doing. Look, the United States has never been a, uh, a neutral or fair arbiter of this conflict, as we all know. but. We are now in uncharted territories. The administration has cut off funding to millions of Palestinian children who count on that money for food and essential services and education. Uh, they have moved the embassy unilaterally in violation of international law, which does not have the support of the international community, and I would say a lot of Americans. They are complacent in the expansion of illegal settlements in violation of international law. And now they're closing the only diplomatic mission and really connective tissue between the American people and the Palestinian people. 
And on top of that, we have political operatives inside of the State Department who are getting my former colleagues fired for not supporting these policies. Long-serving diplomats and civil servants for being scapegoated and driven out of the building they love and the career that they have so much respect and passion for. So it's quite personal for a lot of us. Also, you have John Bolton dismissing the very notion of what a Palestinian is, and you have a lot of people associated with the organization questioning whether Palestinians are refugees, which is complete BS, as we all know. So we are here today in solidarity, not only of the Palestinian people, but both people who deserve the right policies to ensure that there's an equitable settlement that ensures both their security and prosperity and peace in a sustainable manner. So on behalf, really, of my organization and all Americans who care about this issue, we're supportive of maintaining the diplomatic mission here. We hope that future administrations reverse this bigoted and misguided policies. And inshallah, one day we will truly help both people forge peaceful uh, path for peace. Thank you. I'm uh, Rabbi Joseph Berman, and I run Government Affairs at Jewish Voice for Peace. The week that Donald Trump was inaugurated to be the 45th president of the United States, the cycle of Torah readings, the verses from the Torah, from the Bible that were read on Shabbat in synagogues everywhere around the world, were about the rise of the Pharaoh who enslaved the Israelites. It contained the words, a new king arose over Mitzrayim, that is biblical Egypt, who did not know. And what we have seen since that inauguration is a president who thinks himself to be king, actions that are dangerous and hateful and harmful. And we're here because Trump has taken another dangerous, hateful, and harmful action in expelling the Palestinian diplomatic mission from the United States. What we need are leaders who recognize that Palestinians must be free. Leaders who recognize that Palestinians deserve equality and human rights and dignity. Leaders who understand that in order for Israelis and Palestinians to live in peace, to be safe, to have a better future, there needs to be justice. There needs to be the right of return. And there needs to be a negotiated settlement. We need leaders who understand that the United States has to stop enabling occupation and inequality and displacement, and instead put forward an actually just foreign policy. In expelling the Palestinian diplomatic mission, Trump is doing the exact opposite. Trump is saying first and foremost that the Trump administration is not interested in peace, they are not interested in freedom, they are not interested in equality. Instead, they have chosen the path of ignorance, the path of violence, and the path of hate. So what do we do in response? We respond the way that millions and millions and millions of people are responding all across the country to Trump's hateful and dangerous actions. We organize, we stand together, we lift our voices, 
we make phone calls, we take to the streets, and we affirm that freedom and dignity and human rights for Palestinians and that a just peace are possible and we continue to fight for that future. Our next speaker is Samir Khalaf, President of American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Please, Samir. Uh, thank you, Hanna. Once again, thank you uh, all for coming here to be with us. On this somewhat sad but proud day, um, 40 years ago, the Palestinians and Israelis embarked on a, on a long path. That path was supposed to lead towards peace. That path was supposed to lead towards mutual acceptance of one another. The United States government was supposed to be the, the leader in the path. They were supposed to be the guide to the path. They were supposed to be the moderate, excuse me, the neutral mediator in order the two parties can come together and adjust, adjust for peace. Through those 40 years, the Palestinians have given, given, given. The Israelis continue to take, take, take. Slowly but surely, they kept taking. What Donald Trump has done the last few, uh, year or two has sort of laid bare the truth of the matter. The truth that the Americans were never really a neutral mediator. And they could never be a, a neutral mediator in all of this. What he's done is basically taken up his position within the Likud party. By giving into every single demand that the Israelis have asked for, they have left nothing for the Palestinians. If he thinks that the Palestinians are going to take the crumbs off the table from the Israelis, he's greatly mistaken. The Palestinians are a patient people. They've waited for a long time to get their own land back. They've waited for a long time to move back to their homes. They kept their keys, they kept their paperwork, and they can wait as long as it need be for them to get what they deserve, a just and uh, lasting peace. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. My name is Osama Abu I'm the National Policy Director for the American Muslims for Palestine. I want to remind us of why we're here, the main reason why we're here. Closing down the offices of the PLO mission in Washington, D.C. is just one symptom of a larger problem. But the main objective of this administration is to neutralize what it sees, what it considers as obstacles to peace between Palestinians and Israelis. This is not my claim. This is the argument that was made by our own president Trump, when he said that he took off, he took Jerusalem off the table and he took the refugees off the table so there will be peace between Palestinians and Israelis. Meaning, for him, it means that removing the core and central issues that define the Palestinian struggle and define the Palestinian plight equals peace. We know it does not. We know it does not. What they're trying to do is to liquidate our cause. What they're trying to do is to impose the parameters of peace on Palestinians. But peace that will not give them sovereignty, peace that will not give them a state, peace that will not ensure the right of return of the Palestinian people, and peace that will not bring to an end the settlements that are, that are infesting in, in, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So this is a non-starter for the Palestinians. This is only a symptom of the problem. We have to deal with the larger problem, which is again to challenge this administration and to challenge Israel that is channeling its policies through this administration. Kushner 
Graham Bell, David Friedman are only complicit to the state of Israel. They're channeling the policies of the state of Israel. And I will leave with one final thought. 70 years ago, there were no, there were no single Palestinian embassy. But the Palestinian people were there. Today, they can lower the flag. But Palestine will continue to live. Because we have defied the odds as Palestinians. We have continued to exist. We will continue to exist. We're going to achieve our rights. But what the, the, the major difference that took place today, that we have so many supporters. The Palestinians are not on their own. The Palestinians are enjoying the support of the rest of the world. This administration is the isolated party. It is not the world that is isolated. Eventually, Palestine will exist. Eventually, we will raise this flag again high here in the central of D.C. Thank you. Those were voices outside the PLO mission, which was forced to close by the Trump administration. They closed their doors on Wednesday, October 10th. And those activists speaking outside the former location of the PLO mission to the United States will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played this hour included Scandalize My Name by Paul Robeson and It's All About Freedom by Navasha Dea. Voices in the intro of the show included the historian Gerald Horn, Josh Friedman of the organization Ben the Ark, and Linda Sarsour of the Women's March. You can write us at our website. We'd love to hear from you. If you are a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On the Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with green letters that say On the Ground. On the Ground is also on Twitter, and we are on iTunes under the title WPFW On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.